So several years ago, a shocking amount of years ago now, time flies when you're having fun, when I got married, uh, I made a promise that I would always pursue and work to build up Sarah's joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the thing about that is, it's a, it's a promise and it's a difficult promise to keep if there's not a relationship there. So if she were elsewhere, not in relationship with me, I couldn't very well bring that to fruition. And we come to a similar situation when we come to Micah chapter 3. But before we dive into that, we need to take account of where we are. So Micah was a prophet during the events recorded in 2 Kings 15 to 20. Under the reigns of kings Jotham, Jotham, however you want to pronounce that, Ahaz and Hezekiah, prophets were covenant lawyers. We've talked about this, this principle. They, they were people who came and they prosecuted the nation of Israel on account of their violations of the covenant with God made at Sinai. And, and Micah performed that role in the southern kingdom of Judah. The first three chapters, one of my favorite things so far about this book, the first three chapters of this book are called the Book of Doom, as they are oracles directed directly at announcing the coming destruction upon God's chosen nation because of their disobedience. So in in chapter 1, if you remember back there, Micah pronounced destruction upon the capital cities of both the northern and southern kingdoms, Samaria and Jerusalem. And then in chapter 2, given that the prophecy against Samaria had been fulfilled, so it had been destroyed, he foretold the destruction of Judah, even though at the end he, he qualified that, that Judah would be spared. And in both those chapters, Micah indicted the various sins of the people, particularly the, the social elites and the religious leaders. And then we, we come to chapter 3 tonight, where these cycles of doom culminate as even Jerusalem's destruction is announced. This chapter, like chapter 2, also falls into three sections. Micah was a good Presbyterian with three-point sermons. And also, like chapter 2, Micah addressed corrupt social leaders and degenerate preachers. The the opening words, and I said, it's, it's interesting, this is the only bit of, of narrative interjection that Micah throws in in the whole book. These three words, and I said, and and I think what's going on here is that they resume. There was this little reprieve in, in the end of chapter 2. But this chapter, he picks back up his prophecy of exile against Judah from chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And so despite that reprieve in a message about Jerusalem's deliverance in the midst of Judah's doom in chapter 2, 12 and 13, uh, Micah renewed his castigation of sinners in chapter 3 that culminates in Jerusalem's destruction as we see tonight. So, so this chapter, in other words, escalates 
and finalizes the doom foretold in the previous chapters. The main point is we can never disconnect God's promises from a genuine relationship with Him. We can never disconnect God's promises from a genuine relationship with Him. And we will consider this in three points. Gross industries, gospel issues, and God's intervention. So first, gross industries. In this point, we're going to look at how sinful leaders distorted God-given offices into ways that they could make a profit, an illegitimate profit. This text falls into three sections. The the whole of the chapter falls into three sections. In verses 1 to 4, Micah addressed corrupt judges. In verses 5 to 8, he addressed corrupt prophets who peddled distorted theology to excuse sin. And in verses 9 to 12, he addressed all the corrupt leaders, civil and religious. And we find that each of these little sections follows the same pattern of of naming the group, indicting the group, and then pronouncing judgment on them. And they each follow that same basic outline. So read verse 1 with me. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? So here, clearly the nation's leaders are in view as the heads of Jacob and the leaders of Israel. But that last phrase is that last phrase that tells us that in this first part, he's thinking about judicial leaders, so judges, court judges. They are in view here as these specific transgressors were supposed to know, understand, and apply justice to the people. But then verses 2 and 3 tell us how they actually, even though they were supposed to know justice and distribute it, verses 2 and 3 tell us how they actually behaved. You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones who eat the flesh off my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones into pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. The first description, descriptive statement there is, is obvious enough and it shows that, that these judges who were supposed to uphold right and good had disordered their loves. They had come to love the wrong things. Those who should have rendered verdict on what was righteous and wicked rendered exactly the wrong verdicts. They pursued things that should be hated and they rejected what should be loved. We we can't help but think here of Isaiah 5. 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They had disordered their loves. 
The second description, though, is a bit trickier. We, we've got this brutal description of the judges cutting up the flesh and bones of God's true people to cook them. And the difficulty is deciding whether or not this is literal or metaphorical. The Israelites in the northern and southern kingdoms had practiced even child sacrifice and at times eaten their own children. As Second Kings 16, 17, and 6, as Reverend Pearson preached not too long ago, recount for us. And further, the, the type of cauldron here, this is a, a bit technical, I guess, but the type of cauldron indicated by the Hebrew word here was used in cultic ritual. So this could very well be a real devouring of fellow countrymen. But I think, think Micah most likely spoke metaphorically here. That's most likely the case because, so I mentioned the pattern of how each of these oracles come in this chapter and how Micah structures his rebukes. So if you jump down, verse 5 describes how the prophets ministered only to those who bribed them but turned against those who did not. And then verse 11 explicitly indicts judges for making decisions based on bribes and the priests and the prophets based on money. And Micah kept that pattern, I think, in this first section as well and spoke metaphorically about how these judges were ready to betray their people for selfish desires. That... That doesn't blunt the force of Micah's accusation here because he still obviously considered these acts of extortion to be as heinous as acts of cannibalism. It was as if these judges were cooking their people up for dinner Because they treated them as nothing more than a fancy meal ticket rather than giving them justice. I think it's worth here highlighting the the corresponding parts of this pattern of these oracles here. So verses 5 to 8 address the corrupt prophets. Verse 5 says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. These corrupt prophets are teaching in a way that directs people in exactly the wrong direction, theologically and morally. Those are never separate things. Theological and moral corruption, they are always bound together. And these prophets do that. They say what people want to hear, namely peace, so that they'd be well fed. But 
but they then attack those who won't bribe them. There was an incident in America a few years back. I sort of remember vaguely, I think, when it made the news. There was a prosperity teacher named Benny Hinn. He's a well-known television personality. He said it wanted, so he started receiving criticism from Orthodox evangelical Christians. And he said on television at one point that he, he wished he had a Holy Ghost machine gun so that he could kill his opponents. Those who disagreed with him. I'm not overstating that. That phenomena, phenomenon of false teachers seems not to be new. Israelite prophets also attacked those who did not encourage, endorse, support their rotten ministries. And we find the same crookedness in the judges and the ministers of multiple stripes, again in verses 9 to 11. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. These leaders have destroyed everything that they as judges were called to protect because they give judgment for a bribe. They make their decisions based on who's going to pay them. Further, the priests and prophets teach according to what they're paid to teach and perform acts of divination, occult practices for money. And we'll take that up in in more detail in the next point. But the point here is that the gross industries are how Israel's leaders had distorted God-given roles, God-appointed offices just prophet and priest into ways to lead people away from God so that they could make illegitimate money. And that brings us to our second point, gospel issues. So the, the, the previous point looked at how this text highlights the corruption that had infected Israel's leadership on the civil and religious fronts. And this point is going to explore more about verses 5 to 8 and verse 11 to think specifically about the religious significance of, of this text. I think verse 11 is actually sort of the best entry point into thinking about verses 5 to 8. So let's read that verse together. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is the Lord not in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Okay, so, so we see here the root of the problem. If, if we think of this, so so if there's a the fruit 
and the trunk of this tree. It's that the three categories of leaders, judges, prophets, and, and priests are corrupt. That's, that's what's growing out from the root. The priests will deliver whatever doctrine will make them the most money. The prophets supposedly of the one true God engage in occult practices because they've been offered money to do so. And then, then we see the root of the problem. That they are still claiming to lean on the Lord in all of this wickedness. Because after all, they claim to serve God. So God has to, if we claim God is working among us, He has to be. And we have to ask, how often do we see that still today? This is a rotten phenomenon that has never died and withered like it should have. Supposed preachers still drop the name of God to add credibility to the garbage they peddle. Should we not obviously think now of the Joel Osteen types? And the leader now, globally, I think, of this type of movement. Your best life now, if you just buy my book. Others less known, constantly promoting the notion that, that if you just send money to their ministry, you will experience immense material blessing. It's the same filth vomited by these false teachers in Micah 3. They, they claim God is in their midst, but it is a sham. They assume God's name is some magic spell that will protect them from disaster. And where they are wrong is that it is in abuse of God's name that has made them a magnet for God's destruction. Turn to verses 5 to 8. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry, Peace! When they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So, okay, so in this section, Micah directly confronts the false prophets working within God's own established religious structure. They, they proclaim peace to those who feed them and attack those 
who will not bribe them or promote their distorted theology. And we find God's reaction to this in verses 6 and 7. And He will have none of it. He will bring night upon their ministries so that their ministries no longer have any insight into the truth. That's what it means for them to be in utter darkness. The sun shall go down upon these prophets, which is a phrase we still use today to indicate someone's time has come to an end. God will shame them because they call to God but cannot receive an answer because they have no idea who He truly is. And just again, is that not the same kind of thing that we hear today? We see it in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. They peddle a message simply for the money they can make from it. But we can push this even further into movements that are a bit closer to us. And there are various degrees of this, and I know that. But we can think about the extreme versions of the seeker-sensitive approach church. This, This approach takes what unbelievers want to be the baseline of what we should do in church. They say it's worth changing everything to get the message out. But the message changes too. To make it relevant. The scriptures become insufficient because this kind of leader has such great insight into what God does that they can tell Jesus is at work even among those who have not made a credible profession of faith. We, we see this in the emergent church, guys like Rob Bell, who distort the love of God to endorse any and every heinous thing sinful people love to do. And they do it all claiming simply that God is doing a new thing, a new work among us, and moving away from the stale word of Scripture. That's how they can say things like, they learn more about Jesus from Oprah than the Bible. It is odd or insane how sinners convince themselves and the church that the gospel about the rescue of sinners is irrelevant unless it connects with some felt need. Everyone should feel their need for rescue from hell. It seems super relevant then that there is a message that shields you from eternal torment. If you have the diagnosis of terminal incurable cancer and the doctor comes in and says, 
the cancer's gone, that news is incredibly relevant. And yet preachers given to the pressures of society that will help grow their churches. And they promote this agenda using the terms like relevant and practical. They talk about how the gospel entails certain things and requires us to do this and that. And funny enough, those in those contexts, the gospel entailments and requirements are their own pet projects. People like Rob Bell reinvent Jesus, pretending they can decide what Jesus really would have said despite the scriptures because they want to excuse and condone their own godlessness. People corrupt the message. Again, like last week, it is the half-truths. People corrupt the message about God's inclusive and searching love to mean God is desperate to have you no matter what sin you refuse to quit loving. They they make the gospel of sinners accepted into a message about sin acceptable. Others tout their own personal campaigns against or for culture as gospel concerns. The gospel is at stake if this particular issue doesn't go my way. Sometimes there's legitimacy there. I acknowledge that. But the gospel, as Reverend Pearson preached well for us this morning and clearly, gospel is that Christ was died and raised for your salvation. End of story. The apostolic writings are explicit. Those are the matters of first importance. Gospel issues are the things at stake in alteration of the message about Christ or anything delivered to us in Scripture to support our sin. Which brings us to our third point, God's intervention. So, okay, we looked first at the corruption that had infected Israel's civil and religious leaders, had crept into the establishment. Then we considered how people distort God's word to suit their own desires, preferences, and agendas. And now we need to think about God's response to that distortion of his word, especially within those offices that he appointed to uphold it. So verse 4. Then they will cry to the Lord, but He will not answer them. He will hide His face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. So God reverses the fortunes of wicked judges. Judges exist so that those who have suffered wrong can cry out to them for help. That's why they're there, so that you can cry to them for justice. Yet these judges had heard the rich and oppressed those in need of justice. And so God refuses to hear them. 
We've seen in verses 6 and 7 how, how God brings curses upon the prophets who abuse His Word. And we see this culminate in verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house, a wooded height. So at the beginning of this verse, the word therefore, that's an inference, right? The the fun things about Scripture are the, the grammar for some of us. In this case, telling us that this punishment happens because of the wicked things listed in verse 11. So whereas chapter 2 ended with a promise of deliverance for Jerusalem, God's pronouncements through Micah have escalated so that even God's city should expect doom. Not even Jerusalem's prized position protects her now. What does that mean for, for us here and now? If, if God will turn His wrath against disobedience, even upon His own city... How can anyone, how can any of us in particular, know we will be safe? And we can start to see our answer in verse 8. Micah said, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah was was filled with power from the Spirit to announce Israel's sin. And now if you think back about the passage that we read from Jeremiah. So chapter 26, then verses 16 to 19 explains that Micah's prediction of a curse against Jerusalem had actually struck home and brought some repentance during Hezekiah's reign so that God delayed Jerusalem's destruction. And that's what Jeremiah is calling people to remember, that if they would turn back to their actual relationship with God, destruction does not fall upon them. And this means then that the key premise is not, not about having the outward trappings in place like so many Israelites thought. It, it did not matter that they were in the promised land and in the temple and doing sacrifices because they had no faith. And likewise, it does not matter if you are in the church. It matter if you are baptized and regularly attending, no matter what church it is. It does not matter if you are enthusiastic participants in midweek Bible studies or if you are the most involved in church lunch or any of the things we do. It does not matter. If you do not have faith, your eternity will be worse than the fate of Jerusalem. And 
in that instance, then, God's intervention was to curse His own people for their wickedness. But, for those who see their sin, and repent of it, and run to the Lord, God's intervention is very different. Instead of God intervening to inflict curse upon us, God's intervention for Christians is to deflect curse from us. We have heard this weekend of the one who was cursed in our place, who endured darkness as we considered on Friday, and death, even though that was ours to endure. That that one, that Holy One who would not see corruption was our Lord Christ, God the Son incarnate, whose righteous life earned heaven and whose substitutionary death on the cross freed us from eternal curse. What's more, what's more, he burst from the grave and ascended to heaven to prove, prove, be vindicated that he has broken our curse and that he stands in heaven to plead our case. He is a pledge that we belong in His kingdom if we trust in Him. We lean, we do, we don't, we don't. We do not lean on our own practice or privilege. But we stand on the beams of the cross because cross and the tomb are empty, proving that Christ effectively removed the sting of death for us. And we know as we stand there, as we cling to the arms of our Savior, that we can be secure, and when we trust in Him, we know we are His true people. Let's pray. Father God, we do tremble at the thought of being under ministry that brings condemnation and destruction. I feel terror at announcing Your Word, knowing that this is what can happen if we dis Your truth. And so we beg You, O God, to lay the truth deep within our bones. Soak us in Scripture. Keep us faithful to your gospel. Set Christ before us that we would see Him forever. Make Him our vision that we would pursue all our life long. That we would fix our eyes on the risen Savior, knowing that He has taken the sting out of death 
that He has earned a kingdom for us, and that He has gone only to prepare a place for us. And so we pray tonight that for all those who have not believed in that message, that you would make that happen even now. And we pray for us, that you would keep us faithful to your truth, that we would be in love with a precise and well-formulated biblical gospel. That that would be the thing that fuels our hearts for worship. And we pray for this church, for churches in this country, for churches all around the world, that you would make it so that your word is faithfully proclaimed in every pulpit across this globe. That you would remove false teachers and that you would fill your church with the truth. We pray for that because we love the truth. Because Jesus Christ is the truth. And we pray that you would fix us on him. Fill us with faith this week that we might love him. Be ready to go out and serve him. And give us opportunities to talk about him. And we pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.